And we get to sing these songs about once a year. And uh, it's always kind of special to, to hit some of the ones that, uh, that you've grown to love over the years. So um, open up your Bible with me this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to spend a bulk of our time today. And uh, we're in the middle of a, of a series looking at Isaiah. And um, I've really enjoyed over the last few months, thanks, Matt, um, I've enjoyed studying the, the whole book of Isaiah, really. Well, the second half, you know, if you are looking for something to read um, from, from the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 is a great place to spend some time and uh, just allow the Lord to encourage your heart. And, and what we're going to talk about today, which we've been dealing with together over the last couple of weeks, is the hope that comes with the Christmas season, the hope that we can have in Christ and that we live in really the, the, the reality of daily um, in our lives. And so I want to focus today on at verses 25 through the end of chapter 40, which is verse number 31. Before we do that, though, I do want to just share a couple of things we're praying about as a church. Um, I know there's a lot of people that will be in and out here for holidays, and so, you know, it's always a good time to see loved ones. Um, but there are others, that, as you're probably aware, that, that maybe this is a challenging time, uh, maybe a lonely time, maybe a time when, um, when things aren't going exactly the way you want. We need to be encouraging one another. You know, reach out to people and let them know that you're happy to see them here at church. And if you have the opportunity, invite somebody in your house over the next couple of weeks. It would be a great thing for you to do. Um, people coming in, college students, we have military people with us today. And so just uh, use these times to, to be encouragement, enjoy each other's company. But along those lines, what we started out in our service today, um, it's a great opportunity to point people to Christ. And so I really encourage you to be thinking about the candlelight service and who it is that you might invite out that night. Well, again, we're in Isaiah chapter 40, and we've been in kind of a series here looking at the hope that comes in Christ. And our, kind of our theme over the last couple of weeks is this, that hope, the hope that we have, is no stronger than the one you hope in. If you think about that statement, it is quite significant because a lot of us hope things might happen. I hope this occurs. I, I hope that, that this job opportunity happens. I hope that, that this thing at my, with, my, with my life and with my family, with my marriage, with my children will happen. But hope is no stronger than the one that you're hoping in. And so we've been looking in God's Word at the hope that comes for us who are in Christ. And I, I want us to understand today that as we, as we read this passage and as God's Spirit encourages our, our heart, it only applies to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. And so the hope that we're looking at, it's easy to read this and to be impressed by it and to think, oh yes, God is so good. We can hope in Him. We can hope things get better or things improve or, or that God comes through. But listen, outside of Christ, there is no hope. So if you're sitting here today and, and you don't know Jesus, none of what we're talking about applies to you. And so as we, as we dive into this passage, I encourage you to reflect upon your relationship with Christ. Are you in Jesus today? Are you experiencing the truth of a name of God that you sang today? Today you sang Emmanuel. And that liter that's a Hebrew word that literally means God with us. Outside of Christ, God is not with you. In His omnipresence, in His, His all-everywhere being, He is alongside all of us. But there is, a, there is an opportunity for all of humans to have a special relationship where God is with you, indwelt with you. It was this time last year, about one calendar year ago, where I went through a pretty challenging time. I had to go through a surgery. And um, for about three, four weeks, I was on my back. I, I mean, I was really in, in bad shape. And I praise God that, 
that in his, in his provision, um, God allowed some of my family to be with me. In particular, just the way it worked out, my wife was able to take a week off of work and be with me in the hardest time of, of that recovery. I'll tell you, when you're suffering, when you're suffering physically or emotionally or spiritually or whatever it might be, um, you realize the value of having someone with you. Someone with you. What I want us to see today in God's Word is there is a special presence of God that He offers to us. That you can be completely alone. You can be absolutely alone. You can be experiencing loneliness like you've never felt it before. And you can have the reality of God's presence with you. We're going to see today that when we are suffering, when when the chips are down, when things are hard, it's easy to drift into this thinking of, I'm all alone. Is God with me? Does God care? But I want us to be encouraged from God's Word that it is in those moments when God is most present, if we know how to look for Him, if we know how to look for Him. You know, that first Christmas night, that, that nativity night, the one that, that are on most of the cards that come to our houses right now, a picture of that nativity scene there with that manger scene in that stall with the animals and the angels and the shepherds and, and Joseph and Mary and, and baby Jesus in the manger, all that kind of stuff. There's kind of a sentimental feeling that comes with that, kind of a warm feeling. And, and you get this idea of, you know, like a, a family gathering and like, you know, it really feels special that night. But I want us to really understand the reality of that evening and go into the heart. Before we go into Isaiah 40, I want to go into the heart of Mary and Joseph. There were a lot of things about that night that made the situation look pretty dire. And I want to shine some light on that or maybe some dark on that as a a warm-up for Isaiah 40. So let me shine some darkness on that first nativity night. All was not calm. All was not silent that night in Bethlehem. I mean, think about this. The world was without the church. This is before the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean this gathering of people right here. I mean the world influence that the body of believers has had upon humanity. Much of the advantages that we experience on this world today, quite honestly, are the result of 2,000 years of God's redeemed people called the church. Much of the freedom and much of the security that we have in this world today is a result of God's people on the earth. There was no church at that time. The world that that Mary and Joseph knew had been dominated by slavery and servitude for thousands of years. The people of Joseph and Mary had been enslaved for more than 500 years at this time. They had been dominated by by the Romans, had been dominated by the Greeks, had been dominated by the Persians, had been dominated by the Babylonians, had been dominated by the Assyrians. For 500 years or longer, they had served as no better than slaves. Joseph and his people, Mary and her people, the Jewish people, were known as the people of God who God had spoken to through the prophets and through Moses. This was what they were known for, okay? This is what the Jewish people at that time were known for. They had received the word of God. This is what they're known for. And when Mary and Joseph were on the earth, they had not heard from God for over 400 years. No prophet had come to Israel for 400 years. 
We lose touch with how much time that is. Think what would have been happening right here 400 years ago. 1619. For that much time, God had not sent a prophet to his people. Prior to that, there's prophets all over the place. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Micah, all these names of of prophets, Elijah, Elisha. And now, hundreds of years, and God is silent. So domination, silence, this is the... This is the world that Mary and Joseph are living in. And then we fine-tune it. We, we get a little closer now. Let's go into the lives of Mary and Joseph. Mary is likely a teenage child. She's just a girl. And God comes and lets her know that she is going to conceive. Though she'd never been with a man, she had no husband. She was now going to have a child in her womb. And oh, it's easy to explain. The Holy Spirit came upon her. Oh, how's that going to play out? If she explains that to her family. And Joseph, who had been betrothed to this woman, we don't really know for how long, maybe all of his life, we don't really, all of her life that is, we don't really know, but she'd been betrothed and now he finds out she's pregnant. It doesn't just end there. As Joseph and Mary are, are reaching the time when the child is going to be born. Now understand, scorn is coming their way. Scorn from their community is coming their way. Now, another function of domination, they have to pick up their family and travel 90 miles to a census. Now what's that about? That's about taxation. So here we have the domination again. of the Jewish people, by the Romans, Joseph has to pick up his betrothed wife with child near the time of delivery, travel 90 miles. Incidentally, in that time period, an an army or a a group of people would would plan on traveling about 20 miles in a day. But Joseph is now with his pregnant wife. So you figure maybe half that. Traveling 90 miles, let's say 10 miles a day. This is a trip that takes more than a week. He's got to travel. And when he gets there, the, the, the whole community of Bethlehem is overwhelmed with people. Surely Joseph and Mary think that they'll stay with a family member when they get to town, when they get to Bethlehem, but there's no room, no room for them. All of their family is, they're all booked up. And so they have to do something that for us is just common. You know, we, 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 there's nothing for us to go to a hotel or a motel or whatever and get a room. Do you realize this is probably the only time in Joseph and Mary's life that they would ever had, ever had to do this? They've got to go rent a room. No, there's no room available for them. So now they're in a stable. Mary is nearing birth. Her mother isn't there. Her community of women, they're not there. There's nobody to celebrate. There's nobody to help her through this moment. But Joseph, the man that she hadn't really known yet. And yet he's going to deliver this child? I mean, it's dire straits, folks. This is hard times. You know, we had this picture in our mind of the angels singing, and, you know, we're there with them singing, Oh, Holy Night, with a beautiful voice, you know? And we're there, and it's all this sort of special moment with, you know, Christmas trees and a big turkey meal and and all this stuff, and it feels so nice and warm and cozy. No, that's not the way it was at all. I imagine on that night, Joseph and Mary are asking this question. Listen, they don't ask, can God do it? Can God help me? They they know better than to ask, can God get me through this? Their theology answers that question. Their theology answers the question, can God get me through this? But life has driven them at this question. And that question is, will he? Will he? Does God care enough to bring me through this? 
in Luke chapter 5, we won't turn there, it's 30 years after the Christmas night. In Luke chapter 5, this man with leprosy comes up to Jesus. God in the flesh. 30 years later, Jesus has demonstrated that he is God in the flesh. In Luke chapter 5, this man with leprosy comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does that question reveal? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That question reveals this. Theology had taught him that God was able. But life had taught him that God may not be willing. I want to talk today about that. I want us to look at Christmas and look at Isaiah 40 and answer the question, not can God, not is he able but is he willing? Not Is he powerful enough to do? Is he powerful enough to sustain? But does he love me enough to do it? Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to start at verse number 25. Uh, turn there with me. We've been talking from Isaiah 40. We've looked at that, the fact that God is a mighty Savior. We talked last week that he is a sovereign God, and because he is sovereign, we can hope in him. Today, we're going to look at the fact that he is a caring creator. He is a caring creator. We saw last week he is able, he is a sovereign God, but today we're going to ask the question, does he care? Does he care? Verse number 25, Isaiah 40. Let's read through the end of the chapter. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Now that is a very important verse in our understanding of Isaiah 40 today. Verse number 27, really 25 through 27, are very significant. They are making our point today. We're going to see it in the context but quite honestly, verses 28 through the end, we've already made these points of verses 28 through 31. We've already established the same truths together in our study of Isaiah 40. But 25 through 27 are elevating a new question. We'll see what that is in just a moment. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young, man, young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, verse 31 is, quite honestly, a verse you'll see this tattooed on people's arms. Okay? This is one that you'll see this on T-shirts and posters and everything else. But what does it mean? What, what, is, what, is, the, what is the author, Isaiah, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, what does he even mean that, that these that we will have this strength that, that rise up like the wings of eagles and, and run and not be weary. What, what does this even mean? Listen, it is answering the questions of verses 25 through 27. So let's look at it a little bit. I want us to see in verse 25, the Holy One speaks. The Holy One speaks. Verse 25, if you look at verse number 18, okay, look at verse number 18. 
To whom, verse 18 says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare, will you compare with him? Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Verse 25 and verse number 18 are very similar. They're very similar. 25 and 18 are very, very similar. But there is a significant dis- difference, verse number 25, as compared to verse number 18. And that is this. In verse number 25, it is God who is speaking. God has spoken. Notice what it says in verse number 25. To whom then will you compare me? God has now stepped up to the witness stand. Isaiah has been writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but now God steps up. And God is now speaking. And he says, who are you going to compare me to? Who is it? What, what man, what woman are you going to bring up and say he's like him in some way? God now is, is really giving us a, a challenge. He's laying out the gauntlet. He's saying, find me a human. Find me a person. Find the best you can find. Find the best you have to offer and compare him to me. This is what God is saying. The Holy One speaks. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. I'm reminded of the book of Job. I'm reminded of the book of Job where where God finally answers Job. Job's been saying all along, if I could talk to God, I'd say this and I'd say this and I'd say this. And you get towards the end, kind of the last fourth, and now God says, okay, stand up. I'm going to speak to you like a man. And God speaks. Now, when God speaks, Isaiah identifies him as the Holy One. We can't go past this. Listen, that is not just a cliche. All right, when it says here, to whom then shall you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Listen, that in our religion, in our gathering together, those words, the Holy One, can, can become so trite, they can become so common, they can become so trivial that we miss what they mean. When you allow the Holy One to become trivial, when you allow the Holy One to just be like this word that you just glaze over. You know how you read sometimes and all of a sudden you just kind of just glaze over and you realize you're, you're halfway on the page and you haven't even thought about what you read? You can't do that to the Holy One. You can't do that to the expression, the Holy One, because its very meaning means you're not allowed to do that. The word means unique. The word means distinct. It means you can't just pass by it. It means the opposite of common. It means the opposite of trivial. You're not allowed to just go by the Holy One. Please Don't do this. This is the crown of all of God's attributes. When God describes himself, the crown of God's attributes is his holiness. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it means that God is holy. See, we think of holy, we we have the holy Bible, we have holy saints. We have the Holy Spirit. And we think that it just means like really, really, really good. It just means like, you know, it's, a, it's like, it's really churchy. Okay? It like follows all the rules. It, it, it like, it, you know, it's perfect. It's, it, and, and certainly it includes those things. But it's not what the word means. It means absolutely unique. It means that there is no other that God is the God of all gods, that if there were any such thing as other gods, he would be the one that rules all others. He's unique. He's the opposite of common. Keep your finger here and go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Go back a couple pages in this same book. 
where we see when, when Isaiah is, is introduced to God, when, God, when Isaiah is introduced to the throne room of God, when Isaiah can, gets like a, a 3D image, a, 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 very, a very vivid image of the throne room of God, I want you to see what happens. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1, Isaiah says, this is the same author of Isaiah 40, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Here's what happened. God had a special call for Isaiah. Isaiah was a man just like you, just like we would be. But God, in, in this time period, God, God called him to a special ministry of prophet. And this meant that God would allow him to speak for God. So it's this, this arrow of work where, where God speaks now to Isaiah, who then speaks to the people. And so in order for Isaiah to understand the significance of the very word of God, God allows him to see into the throne room. In verse number two, Isaiah does the best he can to describe it. He says, above God are these seraphim. They're flying around. They've got six wings, and they're, they're covering their face and their feet, and they're flying. And, and I mean, he, he's seeing into the throne room of God. He, he, is, he alone, there's very few people who have seen this. He's seeing into the throne room of God. And I want you to see what the angels are calling out. I mean, what do you think they're going to call when they see God? Are they going to call out eternal are they going to say, goodness, he's good, he's good? Or are they going to say, he's going to die for us, he's going to die for us, he's going to die for us? Are they going to say, redeemer, 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 creator, creator, creator? What are they going to say? By the way, in the Hebrew, when a word is repeated like this three times, it's the most power superlative, most powerful superlative. That means it, that, means that the, the Hebrew is putting this word at the strongest level that it can be. You know, you got good, better, best at Lowe's. They got the good hose, the better hose, and the best hose. That's a superlative. Holy, 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 the angels say. They don't say eternal, eternal, eternal. They don't say redeemer, redeemer, redeemer. They don't say savior, savior, savior. They say holy, holy, holy. He is like no other in all the universe. This is our God. It's interesting that in Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, verse number 4, it says that God has made us holy. If you're in Christ, Ephesians 1 says that He has made you holy. He has made you unique. He has made you exclusively His. You're no longer common. You're no longer trivial. You are now God's. Isaiah 40. Go back there. Now let's see what this unique one it points out about himself and why. I want us to see what he says about himself and why. Verse number 25. To whom then shall you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then verse number 26, we're told, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So go, so go with me in your mind's eye. All right, Isaiah now, I believe, is speaking. Okay, this is not the Holy One speaking. This is Isaiah speaking. And he says, lift up your eyes. Who's created these? And his hand stretches over the heavens. And he says, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So I told you that God is the first witness. God steps up says, who are you going to compare me to? I am the Holy One. There is no other like me. I'm not common. I'm not trivial. There's no one else like me. And now, if you would, God steps back, and Isaiah now calls another witness forward. And the witness that he calls forward are the heavenly bodies, the stars. 
the stars. Last night, I walked outside. We had some shopping to do, like most of everybody in Martinsburg apparently was doing last night. Try to get anywhere, and it takes you forever. But I walk across my driveway last evening. Actually, now I think, correct myself, it was right after setup. I look up at the sky. Now, I, I don't know much about astronomy, okay? But I know that thing up there they call it the Big Dipper, okay? I got that one down. I got that one nailed. I look up and I see that and I'm like, man, God made all of this. He, he created all of this. I called a friend of mine, reached out to a friend of mine who does know astronomy and and he tried to explain to me, like, the movement of the stars and, like, how we can track it and all. And listen, I'm no dummy, okay? I'm really not stupid. I'm, I'm not an imbecile. But I had no idea what he was talking about, you know? He's talking about this formula, the elliptical movements and all this stuff. It's a simple mathematical equation. And, and I actually have a background in mathematics. And, and I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. I'm like, you know, I sit there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure, I, I get it describing for me how these planets and these stars and, and all these things move. And, and we can track the movement. It's predictable. We can see where they go. We know where they were 100 years ago, and we know where they'll be in 100 years. Look what Isaiah writes about them. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Listen to Genesis 1. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greatest light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And David said in Psalm 8, When I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him? And when I read in Revelation chapter 4 that the living creatures give glory and honor to thanks to Jesus who's sitting on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him and they cast their crowns before the throne that is and they say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. God was the first witness. And he said, there's no one like me. He sits down. Isaiah now brings the stars forwards. And he says that God has named them. He's named them. Look, he who brings out their host by number. That word host there is the word used for a military unit. That's what that word is. That's your company, okay? That's your battalion. That, it's a, that's the word host. My company of soldiers. You know what that tells me? The stars are nothing but God's created minions to do his will. They will do his will. They are creatures. You look up in the sky and you're seeing creatures that were created by God. He made them. Isaiah says that he called them by name and by greatness of his might because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. He numbers them. He names them. Does that mean that God has a name for every single star in the sky? I don't really know for sure. I don't fully know the mind of God, but I know what it says here, that God has numbered them and God has named them and they are all there because of him. The Holy One has spoken. But now let's get to verse 27. These are the words of Mary and Joseph. These are the words of the leper that day. These are the words of you and me when we're struggling. 
when times are hard, when you're lonely, when you're broken down, when life is beating hard on you. This is the cry of man. The hopeless ones cry. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Here's what Isaiah is recording for us. When things are hard, when the night is dark, when life is pressing, we say, God, I know you are supreme. God, I know that you rule. God, I know that you are the Holy One. God, I know that you made everything. But do you care? Do you care? Are you aware? Have you forgotten about me? This is what the hopeless mass of people cry out. And you might feel that way today. You know, it's easy when you see all the Hallmark movies, when, when, you, when you're riding down the road and you hear the people on the radio talk about all the great Christmas memories, when you hear the songs and they, they bring back nostalgia from your life in the past, I'm telling you, it's easy at those moments to drift into melancholy, to drift into sadness, to drift into this question. God, do you care? A couple of things I want to point out about this. Verse number 27, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, o Jacob and speak, O Israel? These, the, the tense of these verbs, the aspect of these verbs is called the imperfect. You don't need to know that, but what you need to know is this. These are questions that aren't just asked once. That's not what this means. It means that they're asked over and 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 over till you die. That's what it means. They aren't just asked once. You don't just find, this question is not just answered once and then it never goes away. No, no, no. This question of the care of God will always come and hound you. Your theology tells you that God created the stars. Your theology tells you that God is the Holy One. Your theology tells you that God is able, but life again and again will chase you down and make you wonder, does he care? It's an imperfect tense. We keep asking that question. It's part of our human nature. I am convinced that Mary and Joseph, in their understanding of life and how things operate, they were, they were working through this themselves. God, do you care? I'm convinced that the leper that Jesus met, and he cried out and said, I know you are able. I know you can do this if you are willing. He was asking this question, and maybe you are as well. They cry out, so in the imperfect tense, the imperfect aspect, they're asking this question. They say that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. I want to, say, I want to talk about that for a minute. What does that mean that my right is disregarded by, by my God? This is, not a, this is not an opportunity for you to demand your rights. That's not what this is. This is not, God, I have the right to this. That's not what this means. This word right can also be translated justice. Justice. And so what the, what, the, what the question is asking is, God, life is unfair. Life can be different. I've been treated poorly. Are you going to be just? Are, are you going to come through and defend me? The same, the same word is used if you turn over a page to Isaiah 42. I want you to go there because you'll recognize these words. Isaiah 42. And I want, us to, I want us to see that again Isaiah is pointing to this question that hounds mankind. God, I know you're able, but are you willing? 
I know you can, but do you care? Isaiah 42, verse number 1. Behold my servant. Now when Isaiah speaks of my servant, he's speaking of the coming Lord Jesus. Behold my servant. He's saying, look at the Messiah. He's writing 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, and Isaiah is saying, hey, look at Jesus. Here's what he says. Whom I uphold, my chosen, God speaking now, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There's that word right. There's that concept that, that Jesus will bring justice. Now it's described a little further. Look what it says. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. No, that's not what he's going to do. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Let me tell you what this is talking about. A bruised reed. Now, a reed would be a, it's a, it's a plant, okay? And it's, it's a long, straight, kind of like, you know, plant you can use to, to, to light something, to, to, to light a wick. They would use a reed. They would light it, and it would be a long, sort of stick-like thing. And it says here, a bruised reed he will not break. What's a bruised reed? A bruised reed is, is a plant that has been damaged in some way, and so it can't hold its weight, this, 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 this plant, this stick is out there, but because it's bruised, it, it collapses under its own weight. And it says that this servant that's coming, he doesn't take a, a bruised reed and just break it and throw it away. And then it says that a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What is a faintly burning wick? A faintly burning wick, I don't know you know this about a fire, but when a fire is faintly burning, it produces a lot of smoke. When I look at my chimney and there's all kinds of smoke pouring out of the top of it, you know what that means? I don't have a very efficient fire burning. I want to look at my chimney and just see heat coming out, okay? Because that means the fire is not really burning well. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What's a faintly burning wick? It's a wick that's burning very poorly. And you know what you do with that? You snuff it out. That's what you do. But that's not what Jesus does. When you and I are bruised and cannot carry our own weight, when you and I are just annoying as this wick just makes smoke, Jesus doesn't just it out. No. He faithfully brings forth justice. Isaiah is saying this. I am able, God is able, and he loves us enough that he doesn't just disregard us. He doesn't just snuff us out. He hears verse 27 of chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? So now God is going to answer this hopeless cry in verse number 28. Let's close it out here to the end. Verse 28. Now it's Isaiah speaking. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? And now he's going to describe God in several couplets. You're going to see these two things shoved together. Okay, it's a form of Hebrew poetry. Okay, and he's going to make this repeated point about our God. Look what he says. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to whom has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall re- for the Lord that is shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is, a, this is an expression of Hebrew poetry. It's not meant to be taken apart word by word. It's meant to be felt. 
This isn't a, this is not a New Testament epistle where we, where we divide each word and, the, and, and, and sort of understand how God has put it together. We're meant to feel this. Hebrew poetry is meant to be felt. And what we're meant to be felt here is this, that God is this great supporter underneath us, holding us up, that we may feel hopeless we may feel like there's no hope for us. There, there's, there's nobody coming forth to hold us. That, that we are nothing more than this, this wick that's annoying, this reed that is bruised. But God comes through and lifts us up. This is what we're meant to feel. Now I want to focus on one thing. It's on verse 31. What's the condition? Who does God do this for? Who does God help them not to faint, not to grow weary? Who does God mount up with wings like an eagle? Who does God allow to run and not be weary? Who does God allow to walk and not collapse to the ground? And faint. Who is this person? Is it just any old Joe Schmo? Is it you because you want it to be true? Is it you because you have it on a t-shirt or on your arm? Is that what makes this apply to you? The answer to all of those questions is no. You see it in verse 31? It's those who wait for the Lord. They wait for the Lord. I love this truth. God is offering to strengthen. God is offering to uphold. But He only brings it to those who are waiting on Him. The Creator cares. The Creator cares. That's what's coming through here. But he's waiting to see who you wait for. So we're back to the gospel, folks. We're back to the gospel. When you wait for God, when you wait, you're admitting there's no other hope. There's no other help. It's not coming from anywhere else. When we wait for the Lord, we're admitting there's nobody else coming. There's nobody else worthy. There's nobody else able. And when I wait for God, it is me confidently expecting Him to come. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. When you and I got saved, when you put your trust in that Infant child who would become a man, who would die on a cross. When you wait for his forgiveness, you're saying it comes from no one else. Redemption comes from no one else. Forgiveness comes from no one else. I can't save me. I can't hold me up. I can't deliver me. I'm helpless. So I wait for God. But you're also saying, I know that what he offers will deliver. His forgiveness will forgive. His redemption will redeem. His death brings me life. And so I wait for him. This is Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, pointing to grace. It's the cross. It's it's Christmas. It's Noel. As Pastor Steve pointed out, it's the good news of the birth of Christ. So for 700 years, they waited. They waited. And then Jesus came. It's hope. I want to read it from start to end, not the whole chapter but 25 to 31. I want to read it because I want us to feel it today. 
as we go into Christmas, as we recognize the plight of life, that at times we know he's able, but we're not sure he will, so we keep waiting. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but... They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow together as a body, a group of called out people of yours, Lord, every person here who is called out to you, you have called them your sons and your daughters. But Lord, each one of us live here in this sin-cursed world. And the life that we do lead sometimes leads us to ask these questions of where you are. And are you aware? Some of us are walking it right now. And some of us, this is preparation for what might come. Father, I pray whether we're in that moment or whether it is in our future that we will wait on you. That we will trust in you. That we will look to you. That we will know that we are yours. And that you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to come to earth. Lord, to come that night, that night we speak of, of a silent night, a holy night, but Lord, it was a difficult night. And you came and brought us life. Remind us of this truth, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.